0: Again, we're in Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? And he marveled because of their unbelief. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, it is a remarkable thing to see the King of Glory so readily rejected in this passage, and yet we do this all the time ourselves. So teach us and humble us as we enter into your word this morning. Grant us true understanding and give us ears to hear and hearts to receive you. I pray that anything that is of my words and thoughts would fall away and that your word alone would plant in our hearts this morning. And we rely on your Holy Spirit for us to receive your word in faith. And so I pray that you would go before us and open us up to your word. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, it's August 1936, and the world's attention is focused in Berlin, where Nazi Germany is hosting the Olympic Games. And if ever there were Olympics where you wanted your country to triumph, it was this one. Hitler had designed everything about the Games to emphasize German strength and to promote the idea of Aryan supremacy. And so the world is watching. And out onto the arena walks a black man from Ohio, Jesse Owens, to challenge that idea. And he did so convincingly, breaking multiple world records and earning four gold medals in track and field. Owens triumphed. He would return home, a hero. But he was not received as one. After the parades and celebrations faded, he was still a black man in Jim Crow America. He reflected on his experience, saying, I came back to my native country and couldn't ride in the front of the bus. A hero without honor in his hometown. Jesus, in this passage, is also returning to his hometown After a string of victories, he's just raised a girl from the dead. He's healed a woman of 12 years of a discharge of blood. He's exercised a legion of demons from a man who had become something less than human. He was so tormented. And he had commanded a storm and it obeyed him. And people are believing in Jesus left and right, he's on a roll. And so when we read in verse 1, Jesus came to his hometown, we're expecting that Jesus is going to knock this out of the park. Here comes the lob. If anyone would receive Jesus, surely it would be his hometown. But instead, Jesus' popularity comes crashing down. And he comes home to harder soil than he's encountered yet in the gospel. In this gospel, and he receives one of the sternest rejections recorded in all the Gospels. So Jesus, to our surprise, is not the hometown hero. He is the hometown reject. Why would Mark show us this? Why this portrait of unbelief at the heels of all of these great stories of faith? Well, it is to hold a mirror up in front of us and ask, will you receive Jesus as he really is? Or will you reject him when he hits too close to home? What happens when your hero gets under your skin? So our main point this morning is that the gospel is often rejected where it hits closest to home. Gospel is often rejected where it hits closest to home. And I want to make three points to unpack that idea and these, these are the three points. One, we reject Jesus because he defies our categories. We reject Jesus because he defies our categories. Second, we reject Jesus because he demands our allegiance. We reject Jesus because he demands our allegiance. And third, we reject Jesus to our own loss. We reject Jesus to our own loss. Loss. And so let's look in at our first point. We reject Jesus because he defies our categories. The simple fact of this story is that Jesus is telling his hometown that he is their Messiah. So mind you, Jesus is teaching in a synagogue, he's a bona fide rabbi now, and he's garnered enough legitimacy in his ministry. To have been given a platform, to be invited into the synagogue to teach. And he's not just some guy waving turn or burn signs at the street corner that the people of Nazareth are free to ignore. Little Jesus is all grown up, and he's come back home. And in their eyes, Jesus has gotten too big for his britches. He's forgotten who he really is. One of their own is claiming to be the Messiah. You can hear the disorientation and disbelief in their questions. Their minds are computing new info about Jesus with what they have previously known about him. Here's the new. Here's how they voice the new. Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? They're hearing his teaching. They're seeing that he's performed miracles, and they do not have an explanation for how this is because this is what they know of him, the old. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not these are not his sisters here with us? In other words... This cannot be compatible. This is not God. I watched this kid grow up in the house, down the road. He's nothing special. We are watching the people of Nazareth try and compute the reality of the incarnation in real time. You know, they didn't have the doctrine of the incarnation all developed like uh, for them like we do, that they could just nod along and say, yeah, yeah, I understand this because, you know, God is fully, or Jesus the Messiah is fully God and fully man and I guess he came from Nazareth. This makes sense. No, this was upending their way of thinking. If they were too familiar with Jesus to accept that he was God, we might have the opposite problem of overfamiliarity with the doctrine of the Incarnation. I like how one commentator put it, reflecting on the mere fact that God and Jesus has a home, had a hometown. He writes this, The incarnation had been to us but a phrase. We had never imagined that it was so downright and physical a fact as we now see. He had been so mystically remote, so unactual, so visionary As we first learned of him through the creeds, now we see that it is true in a sense that we had never dreamed of that he became as one of us. God has a hometown. And so it shouldn't surprise us that the text reports that many who heard him were astonished. Jesus is putting before them a mind-boggling truth. That the Messiah, the chosen one of God, has come from among them. That all the hopes and dreams of Israel hinged on this common man from nowheresville. You know what's a lot easier than coming to terms with a difficult, life-changing category is to either ignore it altogether or find a way to reject it out of hand, which is exactly what they do. In essence, they say, there's no way this guy's power is from God because he's a townie just like the rest of us. Even though the new evidence is overwhelming, they've heard the reports of this man who has calmed the sea and who has raised a child from the dead and is healing sicknesses, they let what is familiar to them dominate. They do not receive the new evidence with faith. They choose instead to stick to their previous category. You know, it makes me think of favorite categories of ours that Jesus defies, that we like to ignore. There's a popular saying, God helps them, God helps those who help themselves. Where scripture says his power is made perfect in our weakness. A lot of us live with this internal question driving us, what's in it for me? How much of the actual how much of our life is driven by the momentum in our hearts of looking out for number 1? Jesus says, "Blessed are the meek." How dominating of a thought is blessed are the meek in our minds. Here's another one, hit first and hit hard. Win, conquer. Whereas Jesus says, turn the other cheek. We concern ourselves with questions of our net worth. Jesus says, do not build up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. We are not unlike Jesus' hometown, they don't want a common Messiah from unremarkable Nazareth. And we don't really want a humble king either. We all resist the lifestyle of Jesus. The, pathward of, or the path of downward mobility, as Henry Nouwen calls it. Jesus calls us to live by a set of categories and principles that are foolish to the world, that look totally upside down. So we should not be surprised at the people of Nazareth responding this way, because we respond this way all the time. We are fine with the Jesus who goes with the grain. But when Jesus goes against the grain of our way of life, of our way of thinking, well, there we are far less likely to receive him. And so our first point, Jesus defies our categories. And it's not just that he defies our categories and says, but hey, if that's just me, you do you. No, he defies our categories and then says, repent and follow me, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, these categories are the ways of the kingdom. Follow me. He demands our allegiance. And so we come to our second point. We reject Jesus often because he demands our allegiance. And we can rightly infer this from the text because We know what Jesus taught when he entered the synagogue. Mark tells us the pattern at the beginning of his gospel, chapter one. He says, Jesus went into the synagogue preaching, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Believe that God is doing a new thing in me, in Christ, in a surprising way. Jesus is saying that in him the kingdom is at hand. And the people of Nazareth do not like this. Look at the phrase at the end of verse 3. This is a potent and controlling phrase in our passage. It says, and they took offense at him. You know, there are two ways to be offended. One is to be on the receiving end of something that is itself offensive. You know, a crude joke or a rude comment. The other is to be on the receiving end of something entirely appropriate and true, but that you don't want to hear. And this is the second kind. The word offense here comes from the Greek skondalon, which means stumbling block. They are stubbing their toe on Jesus. He has set something before them that they don't like. In 1 Corinthians, Paul uses this same word and concept when he says, this, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and folly to the Gentiles. Christ is a stumbling block to the Jews because the Messiah was supposed to reign and conquer, not die. And folly to the Gentiles because kings are powerful, not weak. So, What is the stumbling block here for Jesus' home, Jesus's hometown? What is he putting before them that they are tripping over? It's that their king seems no better than them. He doesn't have the pedigree of greatness. In fact, isn't he the illegitimate child of Mary? Because you see in this passage, no mention of Joseph. The town is, all, is very aware of Jesus' pedigree, and it does not look to them like the pedigree of a king. You know, the story is not unlike joseph in the book of genesis telling his brothers that he had a dream that his whole family would bow to him us bow to you you're one of us you're no king you're no ruler in fact you're the youngest brother jesus here is the non-special prophet of nazareth saying he's the son of god And if he's the son of God, then he is their savior. And they are unwilling to be saved by someone unspecial. And the scriptures predicted that Nazareth and we ourselves would have this exact response to Jesus when it said he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. He came to his own and his own received him not. We are Nazareth in this story. The cornerstone is cut from their own rock, and that's exactly why they stumble over him. He's nothing special in their eyes. He's too ordinary, too lowly. But the evidence that Mark has presented to them of Jesus' miracles and his teaching The evidence that they want to ignore is that, no, Jesus is indeed someone very special. Even if he seems, even if he's from nowhere special and appears nothing special. This is the cornerstone God has chosen. And we either stumble over him or we build our life on him. Those are our two options. And so we reject Jesus because he defies our categories and he demands our allegiance He calls us to embrace the wisdom of God, even though it looks like foolishness. And the power of God, even though it looks like weakness. He takes our hopes and our dreams and our expectations, like Israel's hope for a mighty warrior to overthrow Rome and restore the kingdom, or like our hopes and dreams for an easy life or for a life where we get ahead or whatever it else is that we expect. And he says, that is not the way at all. I am gentle and lowly. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Become nobody with me. And I will lift you up. And all this reminds me of a quote that's uh, been spun into more colorful language, uh, but the original goes like this. The truth will set you free but first it will make you miserable. The truth will set you free, but first it will make you miserable. There is no way to be saved without first being conquered. Eternal life in Christ comes at the cost of death to self, of giving up your expectations and receiving Jesus as he really is. So we come to our third point, that we reject Jesus to our own loss. We reject Jesus to our own loss. And I'm getting this from verses 5 through 6, where we see Jesus' response to his rejection. How does he respond? With judgment and awe. Look down at verse 5. Verse 5 gives us a fairly unsettling and frank statement about Jesus' humanity. It says, and he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them and he marvelled because of their unbelief now this may unsettle us unsettle us what do you mean Jesus could not do a mighty work and what do you mean he marvelled god can do anything and god knows everything this is true here we have an example of the mystery of the incarnation. Jesus is fully God and fully man. And here the accent is falling on his humanity. And we should let the text mean simply what it says. Jesus could perform no mighty work there. But notice it's not absolute, as if their unbelief laid hostage to Jesus's power. Because the rest of verse 5 reads, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Mark's point is not to make a, 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 you know, a doctrinal point about Jesus' limitations. His point is that their unbelief precluded God's redemptive work among them. They received as judgment the natural consequences of their unbelief the absence of God's saving power. And so that's what I mean when, we, when I say that we reject Jesus to our own loss. We're fine with him upending our peripheral categories, but when it comes up against our favorite strongholds, our comfortable ways of being, what works for us, even though deep down we know it doesn't, there we are less inclined to let him in. And in those places, we are not transformed. It reminds me of a memoir I read years ago by Mary Carr about her conversion and her deliverance from alcoholism. It's an exceptional book. She had been admitted to a, a psyche, psyche, psychiatric ward at this point in her story, and she had finally come to terms with her unlivable way of life. It was the, the moment of reckoning for her. And here's what she writes. In the Looney bin... I surrendered, not full bore the way saints do once and for all, blowing away my ego in perfect service to God, which, by the way, no saint has ever done that. Not even close. But watching the world through chicken wire convinced me that my unguided thought process would no doubt swerve me into concrete. Before, I'd feared surrender would sand me down to nothing. Now I've started believing it can bloom me more solidly into myself. I'd feared surrendered would sand me down to nothing. Now I've started believing it can bloom me more solidly into myself. The gracious promise of Jesus is that surrender, though it is an act of death, returns us to our true self. That God and his power transforms that act of death into an act of life. This is what Paul means when he says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And he says that as good news. Why? Because dying to self gives way to his life, to true life, to abundant life, to Christ in you the hope of glory Jesus came Jesus said I have come that you might have life and have it to the fullest When we reject Jesus we are not protecting ourselves from him We are forfeiting him We are losing out Our hearts doubt this. Our hearts doubt that giving ourselves fully over to Jesus is life. But how can we know that it's true? How can I be sure that if I give my heart to Jesus, he will give me life? The answer is, he gave his life for you. Would a God so good as to die for you be so cruel as to enslave you to joyless obedience. No. In fact, Jesus, after sharing some of his commandments with his disciples, says, I have said these things that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. We reject Jesus to our own loss because he is good. so where should all of this land for us? What do we make of this? Well, take a look at that last sentence of our paragraph, this sentence that lands with a thud and reverberates. Jesus marveled at their unbelief. This text stands as yet another example in Mark of the surprising response to the preaching of the gospel. It is not the people we would expect who received Jesus. It is not the religious leaders who knew their Bibles backwards and forwards. It was not Jesus' own family who had the Messiah from their own town. But the demon-possessed man, the unclean woman, the centurion on the cross. Those who know they have nothing are able to see with clear eyes and open ears that Jesus is their life The surprise of Jesus in this passage, that he marvels at their unbelief, is meant to alert us, the reader, that our ears may be as dull as theirs, and our hearts as hard as theirs. Because at this point, we have more evidence than the people of Nazareth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Will Jesus marvel at our unbelief? Our great challenge in the faith will always be to receive Jesus as he truly is and to understand our need of him, to believe that God in Christ has done and is doing a new thing in unexpected ways, to give up the myth that our categories and our ways of being lead to life, and to take up the truth that Jesus alone is the way, the truth, and the life. Take up your cross and follow me. That does not sound like the path to life. But God in his wisdom has made it so. What if Jesus' hometown had let him upset their categories? They would have experienced his redemption. What if America had... Let Owens upset its categories. If it had said, well, wait, why are we throwing parade for a man when he wins for us, but still making him ride at the back of the bus? Change would have come sooner. What if we let Jesus upset our categories? If we could take a frank look at our strongholds and receive him to come in and renovate our hearts according to his image, he who is gentle and lowly of heart, Of whom John said, I must decrease that he might increase. What mighty works of God might we see then? And so I leave us with this exercise that we examine the foundation of our strongholds, of our favorite categories where we most resist gospel transformation. That we examine these areas of our lives where we've been un- that we have been unwilling to hand over to Jesus and ask why why do i believe this way of being will save me why am i so committed to this and what evidence has god presented to me to the contrary in scripture and in my life that i yet refuse to accept our ears are dull and if his word has caused you to hear this morning, keep listening and listen with this promise in mind. If you, this is Jesus' words to you. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Let's pray. Father, you are good and your plan of salvation is Good. You knew the kind of Savior we needed. We needed one cut from the same cloth as us, who would take on our nature that he might redeem our nature and lift it up to heights that we could not. Help us to bow to receive our King. To come low as he has come low to save us. To receive the surprising Savior that you have sent us. It is marvelous in your sight. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to receive this your king, our king. In your son's name I pray, amen.